Hello, everyone. This is Daniel Neff, and welcome to the Global Business Alliance's September Trade Policy Podcast. Today, I'm excited to be joined by Brian Pomper from Aiken Gump. Brian, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. So while Congress continues to deliberate the budget reconciliation package, certain stakeholders are continuing to express their distaste for the Biden administration's inaction on trade. Our conversation is going to start broadly on developments in China, then we're going to wind down further into specifics and some recent developments. So I think it's clear that some of the inaction on issues in China are starting to upset some stakeholders, namely the lack of the comprehensive China review, the potential for even more Section 301 tariffs, and China's application to join the CPTPP. So Brian, given all these issues swirling around, I have a very complex question for you. I'm wondering if you could first pin down a letter grade for the Biden administration on trade thus far. I understand that the president has many domestic issues to tend to, and we knew that trade was going to take a back seat. But the phrase trade war in relation to China has been swirling around more and more in the past few weeks. So how should companies feel about the future of trade in this region and with the Biden administration? Well, thanks, Daniel. I, I think um, the grade I would give the Biden administration on trade so far is incomplete. And what I mean by that is, uh, you know, really, we're only about six months into having a USTR. And uh, the, the idea of doing a China review is, is not unique to this administration. So, the, of course, the, the Bush administration uh, famously did a, a China review. You, we had the Obama administration. This really is, I think, the, the geostrategic challenge of our time. And I think the Biden administration... Uh, in, this is one area, as I talked with my clients and others, uh, I, I told them not to expect a, a real sea change in terms of policy between the Biden, uh, between the Trump administration and the Biden administration. I, I said I thought there'd be a change in emphasis. I think Biden is more inclined to work with allies, those sorts of things. Uh, but I do think the Biden administration is looking at trade, not it, it, certainly with respect to China, not just as a trade issue. They're looking at is looking at it as part of the broad geostrategic competition that we have with China. And so not a surprise to me, it's taking as long as it is. I do expect that we'll get some um, inklings or, or maybe even some, some real concrete announcements here on what the Biden administration uh, is planning to do with respect to China. I, I would say next month, October, I, I think is, is when I'm, I'm hearing there, there may be some announcements on this, but I wouldn't expect a giant sea change. I think there will be changes at the margin and again, I think it'll be more uh, on the, the form of process and style than on substance. Great, thank you for that, Brian. So let's move a little deeper and talk about the tariff issue. Sources have reported that the White House is weighing even more industrial tariffs under Section 301. What should companies expect in this space? And do you think there's any realistic or expected timeline here? And maybe who do you think might be driving this inside the White House right now? Yeah, this is it's a good follow on question to the, the last question, truly, because I do think there it's all of a piece. I think um, I, I do expect we'll see some movement in October. And you're, you've heard these um, rumors of a 301 on industrial subsidies in China. We really haven't got much more detail beyond that. I think that was you know, candidly a leak from the National Security Council uh, intended to show China that uh, this administration is not a, a, a uh, we candid and that they're they are going to take action where action should be taken. Uh, so, uh, but really, I think the way to think about this administration on on trade generally and China specifically is is twofold. The first is the administration 
is very focused on domestic priorities, as you noted, and, and they're not shy about that. And, and, you know, they may not even be wrong about that, uh, given sort of what they inherited. Right. So they really focus on, on, on domestic priorities. I do think trade is going to take a back seat for some period of time. I wouldn't surprise me even through the midterms that, that you're not going to see any big, broad new trade initiatives, offensive trade initiatives. Uh, but with respect to China more specifically, you know, the joke I have made and, and funny, I was with a, a, another gray beard seasoned. And by the way, that's a pleasant, nice way of saying old uh, friend of mine who's been doing trade for a long time. And it turns out we're both using the same joke uh, independently of one another on this, which is the way the Biden administration thinks about its approach on China. If Joe Biden so much as has Chinese food for lunch, he will be accused by the Republicans of being soft on China. And so they need to be very careful the steps that they take with China so that they don't get tagged as being soft on China because I think they're afraid that moves voters and it makes it makes Biden look weak and hapless for him to take down the strong measures that Trump took on China. So I think they're going to move very carefully and deliberately. And I think if they're going to make any move to rationalize the existing thrill on tariffs, as I expect them to do, perhaps by opening up some kind of new exclusion process of, of some sort, I expect that to happen. Uh, but that could be viewed as a, a weakening move. And so I think they want to pair it with something that could be viewed as a strengthening move. And I think that's where you get those 301 uh, investigation on subsidies. Now, to say, oh, we're going to do a 301 investigation on industrial subsidies in China, to be clear, that's like the entirety of the Chinese economy, right? It is a command and control economy. It runs by, I mean, everything is a government uh, owned entity, basically, uh, it, you know, at, at its highest sense. So I think you're more likely to see things in specific areas. I do know that that uh, USTR is canvassing uh, private sector stakeholders. I think they're they're talking with some academics. They've they've got some consultants who are working on this. So I I think this is in, this is under active consideration, and my guess is over the course of the next few weeks or maybe month or two, it'll become clear where they're going to target. If I were a betting person, I would expect it to, to focus primarily on any kind of industrial sector that has any link to national security or made in China 2025, and also probably something like um, electric vehicles, which is something that this administration cares, cares quite a bit, of, bit about, and anything related to those climate change type uh, areas, that's, that's a real priority for the, the Biden administration. Great. Thank you, Brian, for that. So sticking with China and looking at supply chains more specifically, some experts are saying that companies aren't particularly pulling operations out of the country. Why do you think that this pressure surrounding the reshoring and nearshoring rhetoric hasn't provided any results? Companies have claimed that they have looked into operations elsewhere in the region and that they're not finding the same infrastructure and workforce that they have in China. Additionally, folks are saying that they don't see the political risk of keeping operations in China outweighing the economic risk anytime soon. Have you heard similar sentiments from clients? And do you think this is going to escalate anytime soon? Yeah, I do hear that. I think, um, I mean, I often say trade gets too much uh, benefit for positives and that people ascribe to it and too much negative for the things people ascribe it to. Trade, trade and trade flows and tariffs, I mean, this is one of a whole complex architecture of things that go into decision making as to where people manufacture, where companies manufacture, where they cite their, their people. So uh, I, I think China did a very good job over the course of the last uh, few decades creating a strong business environment 
for companies to manufacture. And, and that's not just the, the soft things like, or I'm sorry, the hard things like, hey, we'll build a factory for you or we'll, uh, you know, we'll give subsidies, whatever it is. It's also just things, things that you may not think about, like you, there will be factories for a particular industrial supply chain that will all be sited next to one another. And so it's very easy for them to, to trade inventory and, and uh, you know, send materials back and forth. So that's just not something in a, a mature industrial economy like the United States you can snap your fingers and create. But, you know, China grew up in a completely different circumstance. So the, the, there are plenty of U.S. companies who find it still, even with the tariffs, to be attractive to manufacture there. Uh, I, I will say there are. I do have quite a few clients who have tried to move and, and have moved some of their operations. The, the countries you hear most frequently are Vietnam and Mexico, uh, even India. I've heard some some uh, companies moving to India. Uh, I do think the infrastructure and the kind of human element, do their employees want to live there? I mean, th those sorts of things weigh into the conversation as well. Uh, and I think you're right. I think companies for now are just, they're making money as it is. They're going to suck it up with the tariffs for some period of time, I think, in, in the hopes that they're temporary. If, this, if the relationship between the United States and China deteriorates further, and we, we do sort of uh, continue on this industrial decoupling or economic decoupling, then, you know, I think eventually there, there are going to be more and more companies who may have to think about uh, changing their, their strategic plans and their supply chains. So I, I, I guess the, the way I'd summarize this is I don't think it's had the, the the trade war with China the last few years, I don't think it's had no impact on these companies in terms of their sourcing decisions and supply chains. I don't think it's been an absolute sea change, right? I don't think you've seen a stampede out of China, but I do think that there, it's weighed in on people's considerations and they've made some different decisions than they might otherwise have made. Great. So switching gears now, it seems like the Biden administration is kind of moving around the globe and chipping away at some of the more immediate trade issues. First, the U.S. and Mexico have been holding high-level economic dialogue or high-level economic dialogue talks in addition to trying to resolve some issues with USMCA rules, interpretations, and the auto industry. What do you think this means for trade with Mexico in the region? Yeah, this is interesting. Trade with Mexico is uh, it's a tough it's a tough nut to crack, uh, and I would I would put USMCA and the HLED in kind of different categories. USMCA, obviously, there, it was signed with much fanfare and launched, and everybody was all psyched about it. I felt like instantaneously the Mexicans failed to meet some of their obligations. And honestly, I've said this before, it almost feels like the Mexican government kind of gives lip service to USMCA, but is kind of going full steam ahead, doing whatever it wants to do, regardless of what its obligations under USMCA are. And you see that in a variety of areas, certainly with respect to the energy sector, you know, even long-standing complaints like with respect to uh, biotechnology approvals. There's been no movement on, on biotech approvals, and that's a that's a very obvious uh, area of, of concern. And there are there are many others, uh, candidly. So I think USMCA, you know, we'll see what happens there. Lots of bilateral irritants, lots of implementation challenges there. Uh, on the HLED side, the administration was very clear to say. HLED is not a forum in which to deal with bilateral irritants or USMCA MCA implementation issues. 
this is a forum where we, the United States and Mexico, it's supposed to be a positive forum. We're going to find areas that we want to work together and make progress on together, areas of mutual concern. And those are things like people at the border, you know, the climate issues at the border, sanitation at the border, th things that they just, they're, they're not trade per se. It's, it's, it's things that impact both of our economies that working together, we can both benefit. That's what the HLED is supposed to do. Uh, I think out of this first HLED meeting, there weren't a ton of deliverables. And that was, I think, also by design. Uh, I think that the, the purpose of this first meeting was really scene setting, agenda setting. Uh, and the, the most concrete thing to come out of it, I think, was this, uh, this uh, joint supply chain group that is going to think about Again, you know, common supply chains between the United States and Mexico. That also sounds to me like an excellent thing that the two countries can work on in their mutual interest. That is kind of not, it's economic, but it's not really part of USMCA. Great. Thank you, Brian. So hopping over now to Europe, another trade development is the U.S.'s proposal to move to a tariff rate quota system to resolve the tariff dispute with the EU. So first, could you dive maybe a little deeper into the details of that proposal? I don't know that I know the specific details, but, you know, look, a tariff rate quota is, is basically you, you usually get a zero tariff up to a certain amount and then some out of quota tariff that is usually prohibitive. Right. So the idea here is to manage the flow of steel and aluminum into the United States. Right. And of course, that's, we're, that's what we're talking about is the Section 232 uh, tariffs. And um my, so humorously, the way it was described to me was, well, the Europeans didn't vomit all over the proposal, so maybe that's a positive. You know, I, I think the expectation was that the Europeans were just never going to go for any kind of TRQ. Now, what I, I think um, this allows me to talk about a little bit is an historical divide in the EU. And what I mean by this is you've got the political people at the EU, at the Commission, and you have the substantive people at the commission. So I would say like the, uh, uh, the, the kind of the, the political people, like Dabrowski's, right? He is a politician and I think more amenable to uh, a flexible ideological approach to resolving this very real bilateral irritant. I think the, the trade experts at the commission at DG Trade are less flexible and they tend to be more insistent on comporting or complying with WTO rules and, and they're just not as interested in a political compromise or a political solution. So, but you know what, that is a very long-standing thing in the EU where you have these two different viewpoints. And I, I think for this, we'll just have to see which of those two camps wins out. Great. Thank you for that, Brian. And so speaking of the EU, the new US-EU Trade and Technology Council, which if listeners will remember, it was established earlier this summer during the US-EU summit. It's kicking off soon in Pittsburgh. Do you have any expectations there? Anything to expect? Uh, yeah. I mean, again, this is a uh, the first such meeting, right? So it's, it's more of an agenda setting, scene setting meeting. Uh, I, I think many people view it as a, as a positive, the Trade and Tech Council. It's supposed to expand and uh, bilateral trade and avoid trade barriers. Uh, they, they did set up a whole variety of working groups, and it's, it's, I have a list here. It's worth going through 
just because I think it does uh, show you what the, the two sides are hoping to, to cooperate on, like technology standards, climate and green tech, secure supply chains, including semiconductors, ICT security and competitiveness, data governance and technology platforms, the misuse of technology threatening security and human rights, importantly, export controls, investment screening, promoting SME access to and use of digital technologies, and then just the, the broad-based global uh, trade challenges. So they have these working groups set up. Those are areas that I'm sure are of great interest to a whole number of companies uh, here in the United States. So I, I think um, it's, it's easy to make too much of these US-EU dialogues. Uh, there have been many that are strewn on the dust heap of history. Um, and there are some real frictions between the United States and EU, even on these, these areas. I think uh, folks may know that the EU is right now considering two, uh, I guess, pieces of legislation, two, two initiatives, the Digital Markets Act and the Digital Services Act, which I think are uh, quite controversial here in the United States uh, for companies who operate in Europe. I don't know that those are going to be part of the TTC discussions. Uh, and that's so you'd have to scratch your head and wonder why not. And of course, the answer is because it's controversial. And so then that means, well, is this TTC then just going to be a lowest common denominator type approach, kind of like the HLAD? Hey, we're only going to work on things where we can hold hands clasped together and run through fields of daisies saying, hey, we're doing this positive thing together and we're not actually going to talk about the issue areas in this uh, uh, that, that fall into those buckets where we have differences. Uh, I don't know. What remains to be seen. Of course, most importantly about the TCC is that it may not actually happen next week. We'll know, I think, sometime today because uh, the uh, AUKUS submarine decision has, uh, as folks I'm sure know, has so infuriated the French and now the EU is infuriated on the, uh, the behalf of France and so the EU is contemplating canceling the TTC meeting next week. I put it as 50-50 as to whether they have it, uh, but we are expecting a decision today. So not off to a fantastic start, let's put it that way. And yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because I was going to touch on the kind of chilling relationship with France and kind of the friction there. Do you think that beyond maybe the pushing of this event that there are going to be other unintended consequences that could come out of this space? I know that the uh, US and Australia and UK have formed this kind of quad group as well. Well, I, I think there it's it, it, I think you have to separate this AUKUS arrangement from how it played out. Um, and what I mean by that is actually from a kind of geostrategic point of view, it makes a lot of sense, right? To have Australia and give them this, this uh, capability. Uh, I, I, you know, I think many people feel like, at least from this perspective, of course, everything when you're an inside and up close is more complicated. But from the outside, it looks like, boy, they really could have done a better job letting the French know or cutting them into this deal in some form or fashion. Uh, so, you know, is it going to have unintended consequences? I, the thing that it makes me nervous about is that it, let me say it to you this way, the Trump administration and Trump himself personally was very hard on the EU, right? Both in terms of actions and rhetoric. And no surprise, Europe really resented that. When Biden came into office, I think there was a hope and expectation that that relationship 
could be uh, renewed and um, uh, repaired. And uh, it wasn't that when Biden was elected, all the harms that the United States inflicted on the EU, again, this is from their perspective, were immediately forgiven. But I think from the EU side, they thought, great, now we've got an administration we can work with and they, they'll be more predictable and we can, um, uh, you know, they, they will make amends to, to make up with us. They'll kiss and make up with us. And I think they've been a little shocked at some of the things, some of the ways some of the Biden administration decisions have, have played out, I'd say, with Afghanistan first and, and now with this. And what I worry about that is you've got Europe thinking, oh, my God, you know, Biden, you know, actions speak louder than words. Biden talks a great game, but he's he's kind of treating us badly and keeping us out of the loop. It's not that dissimilar from where Trump was. You know, maybe we just need to be more self-sufficient exactly at a time when the Biden administration wants to be closer to our allies to deal with the geostrategic threat from China. Right. So that's what I worry about here. And, and we'll just have to see how that how that plays out. And so now let's kind of finish up looking more broadly. You know, the UN General Assembly has been meeting this week in New York, where President Biden and UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson recently had a meeting. And I'm wondering, how has the relationship with the UK evolved in the past few months? Because we know that the Biden administration initially had put a pause on the trade talks that were happening in the back end of the Trump administration with the UK. But now it kind of seems like the US and UK are going to continue trade talks. I think uh, one can continue talks for eternity if one wants to. I, I don't expect there to be a U.S.-U.K. trade deal anytime soon, if for no other reason than probably you need trade promotion authority before you are able to conclude anything like that. And I don't see trade promotion authority anywhere on the, the near horizon. Uh, so I don't expect there will be US, any kind of U.S.-U.K. deal anytime soon. Uh, I think, uh, like I said, I, I'd be a little surprised if there were any major offensive U.S. policies anytime in the next year or so. I, I think they're they're really going to focus domestically first. There was a, a press report this morning about the U.K. potentially joining the USMCA. I think that is nothing more than uh, uh, wishful thinking on the part of uh, someone who would really love to see the U.K., have some kind of close relationship with the United States. So I, I don't think that there's anything real there. It might make sense in a longer term, but I don't think certainly in the, the short or even intermediate term that that's really in the offing. Well, there's certainly a lot going on in the trade agreements and tariff issue space, so we will definitely keep a close eye on them as Congress and the president continue to focus on domestic issues. But Brian, thank you so much for joining us today and providing your expertise and insight on these issues. Thanks for having me.